0: Hello, welcome to My Camino the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to think you're listening somewhere around the world. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of Saint James, a pilgrimage. And pilgrims have walked the Camino for hundreds of years. Indeed, there are theories the Camino Frances, the most popular route between Saint Jean Jean-Pierre de Port in France and Galicia in Spain, has been a path of trade for thousands of years. Pilgrims since the 8th century have walked to the majestic cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, which translates as St. James under a field of stars. We're told the remains of Christ's Apostle St. James are interred beneath the cathedral, and it has to be seen to be believed. Pilgrims arrive in the square outside the cathedral singing, dancing, hugging, crying. Some have walked hundreds of kilometres, some thousands of kilometres. Almost every one of them will tell you a story of transformation. They'll say this is a moment of celebration, of clarity, of finding yourself. Now, if that sounds ridiculous, so be it. But I urge you to listen to the almost 170 interviews here on my podcast. There are stories of love, of life, forgiveness, reinvention, hope, overcoming extraordinary sadness, discovery, enlightenment, writing, singing, praying, and love. I keep returning to the American Pilgrims on the Camino gathering at Lake Tahoe in March. I was standing in the snow with a smile a mile wide. You don't get much snow in Sydney, Australia. A man walked past and patted me on the back and said, we're the Commonwealth contingent. I wondered what he meant. He was Canadian. His name is Tom Friesen and he has a great Camino story to tell. And yes, we were the Commonwealth contingent. I love Canadians and Canadians love Australians because we like to think of ourselves as humble, generous and welcoming. But there's more to the story. Tom and I are both singers. There's an old Swedish proverb, those who wish to sing always find a song. Tom Friesen is on the line from London, Ontario. Welcome, Pilgrim.
1: Thank you very much, Dan.
0: Before we start, what's life like in London, Ontario?
1: Very quiet right now my life is mostly virtual <laughs> i've been using uh technology to connect with friends around the world so i haven't felt disconnected at all i've been having meetings with people over various uh, with, for family i've got a book club meeting coming up soon but most of my meetings actually have been with communal friends uh, like yesterday morning i had a good friday uh service with some uh, about 25 hospitaleros from from mostly spain but some from italy one from france a couple from brazil and uh italy as well so there was uh, a lot of joy in seeing these familiar and, and, and symp- sympathetic faces
0: yeah you do a lot of training for hospitaleros and hospitaleras you say always speak to an experienced pilgrim before you go on the camino you will probably learn nothing new but you're giving us free therapy <laughs> so what- that's my attempt joke <laughs> <laughs> go on explain explain
1: well i think I think it's really interesting because one of the things I should say I do is I, I helped coordinate a local chapter here in Canada with the Canadian Company of Pilgrims. We're a large country, and it's difficult to get together on a, on a on a unified basis. So we basically have local chapters spread across the country, and people will drive a couple of couple of hours or more to get together with their communal friends and um, fellow pilgrims. But when we have our meetings, I always try and put in the meeting something that everybody will appreciate, and then we call a break so we can get people give people a chance to connect and exchange uh, phone numbers and the emails for that purpose of sharing with an experienced pilgrim. And then we have a we have a group that starts off and does a uh, question and answer for people to have not walked. But I also think it's very very important that we debrief our community, that we unpack our camino and give people a chance to share because. Mm-hmm very often when they return back they start trying to talk about this tremendously significant experience to their friends and family and what happens is after about five minutes the uh, person they're they're looking uh, and talking to kind of expresses some puzzlement and says so you stayed in places where there were beds for 40 and you walked for 25 kilometers and you were in all kinds of weather and there might have been bed bugs and there might have been um, you weren't necessarily sure where you're going to stay and they, they just kind of draw a blank at that kind of experience. So <laughs> it's wonderful for people who have walked the Camino to get a chance to share with someone who's actually interested in the experience that they've had. Because many of us have found it to be a watershed moment in our lives, a uh, life-changing yeah. experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you and I emailed back and forth, you talked about being or the rock in the stream. What did you mean?
1: Well, the hospitalero is the person who makes it possible for the Camino to be such a... Uh, Accessible place for pilgrims. There's a lot of shelters that are open. Most of them are actually private businesses, and it's, it's an opportunity for Spanish people, or or Portuguese, or or French, or Italians, to make some money uh, from the pilgrim tra- traffic. And I I, I recognize that, that to some degree it's a business, but it's not an exp- It's not a business where they're really gouging people. They're 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 supporting. The pilgrims as they walk along. Sure, I work for a service called Hospitaleros Voluntarios and that means voluntary hospital, um, pilgrim shelter workers. Uh, the English like to call them wardens. That has a bit of a different connotation in our country so I don't find myself calling talking about wardens very often. But the um, the opportunity to be in one place and watch the pilgrim groups come through and it's fascinating for me because every night there's a different culture if you will or a different ambiance. In the albergi as the pilgrims arrive, sometimes as a well-integrated team. Sometimes they've been walking together for quite a while, depending on where you, you meet them along the way or when they, when they started, of course. But is often, there's often the uh, social director, the tour guide, the uh, medic, the translator, the singer, the cook. They have all these different, sometimes it's the same person with multiple roles, but they come in and, and across languages, across cultures, across religions, they bond and they form this Tightly connected group of people, and when some of the, some of the places you'll see, when when somebody's time is up to be on the Camino in Europe, it's more often that they walk sections of the Camino rather than the whole thing, as people from Australia and Canada will do. But we we work we 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 see them uh, with actual um, tears in their eyes as they say goodbye to the people that that are in their Camino family or their Camino team or one of my friends called them the, the Camino pod. And that's interesting for me to watch that.
0: Yeah, yeah. How how did the Camino come into your life?
1: I was at a watershed moment in my life. I had retired and I was looking around for things to do that would get me physically active. And I was also interested in travel. I'd never been to Europe before and I wanted to have a different experience. And I found out about a program in Spain where I could go and speak English to Spanish people who had taken English lessons and learn about the culture and stay and stay, stay for a week in a place at no charge to me, which I thought was appealing, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll couple that with a with a walk across Spain uh, on the Camino de Santiago. I'm, I've been a hiker for a while, so it wasn't. And I was going, and I, my Camino actually the first one was from February 22nd to March 21st, so from Roncesvalles across to Santiago. Uh, got to Roncesvalles and had waist deep snow but I was dressed as a Canadian boy in the snow. I had my gore tex outerwear uh, and my, layer, my layers and my heavy boots and my gaiters and my poles and I was ready to go. Uh, I, the only other people who were in Roncesvalles when I, when I uh, <laughs> arrived there were two other women from Majorca and they had not planned to connect at all but when they saw that they had a Canadian who knew how to see, it, see the trail in the snow, which they did not, and also I was, car- <laughs> I was carrying a toilet paper which was in short supply in the albergue, uh, they figured that I might be useful along the way. And it tremendously enriched my Camino because it gave me a connection and a, a, an inner life, an inner workings of the Spanish life behind the scenes. The One of the women spoke very good English. Uh, the other one spoke hardly none at all. Uh, we agreed we really were going to try speaking in Spanish. Uh, it, it frustrated the English-speaking uh, Mayorcan quite a bit. Uh, she once said to me, Oh, Tomás. Your Spanish gives me a headache.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I've kept in touch with those women. Uh, one of them has visited uh, Canada with her partner and the other one I go walking with her on a regular basis. Uh, we normally walk in November when she gets laid off from her job at the airport due to tourist, um, <laughs> tourist uh, numbers dropping. But we, we've we kept in touch and to me they're Camino sisters and, and, and walking with them, uh, I think I changed from being a tourist and a cultural traveler to calling myself a pilgrim, feeling that there was a, a connection uh, with, these, with these people, um, feeling like feeling like that Spain had something for me, admiring the hospitality, admiring the 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 connection with, with the people had with the pilgrims. I had signed up for a hospital training before I went because there was a meeting in Toronto between the American Pilgrims gathering that we, we both experienced uh, this recently and the Canadian Company of Pilgrims, So they're having an international conference, and they always put a hospitalero training at the beginning of it. So I had w- signed up for that. So I, w- I was actually looking fairly carefully at the hospitaleros that I was seeing al- along the way to right. see which model I would be picking up on and which models I would be uh, throwing, throwing off to the side.
0: Yeah, because you've served in Spain for half a month yearly since 2006. What have you seen and what change have you seen in those 15 years, Tom?
1: Well, the train change has been quite significant, mostly along the lines of technology and numbers of pilgrims. Back in back in the when I was walking, of course, it was quieter time. It was actually a winter Camino, so I could count on both on two hands all the pilgrims that I met between Roncesvalles and Santiago, and I knew everybody's name, and we were checking in who had come into who would come into Santiago. Uh, also, people did not walk with their cell phones glued to their ear, and there wasn't the need to kind of could find connections so people could recharge their cell phones. Yeah, right. Everybody's the, the paper with a paper guide uh, of, of different descriptions, and uh, it was a it was a very it, it was a bit quieter time when I went. It's become more, more busy, of course, but you can also find those quiet times if you get off the main route. There's lots of lots of it's it's really more correct to say the caminos because there's many many routes to Santiago. Yeah, and there's routes that lead away from Santiago. But you can get on those routes. And I walked with my friend Rosa, and we've had times when we saw almost no one for a close to a week. So,
0: yeah, so it's that, still there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the you mentioned earlier the the Mallorcans and, and walking as a pilgrim as opposed to a tourist. But it's often said mm-hmm. that pilgrims aren't tourists. And I'm sure at times they're demanding pilgrims. What advice would you give? two pilgrims from a hospitaleros hospitalero's perspective
1: well you for, in my in my perspective as a hospitalero that the, the albergue becomes my home for half a month and i try and treat people arriving with the hospitality i would show them if they were coming into my home mm. so uh, there's music playing in the background possibly there's flowers on the table there's, there's probably uh, the offer of water coffee or tea i try not to get into the formalities I have to register pilgrims and I have to record their uh, their identification information both, sure. both for the city of uh, the alberghi and, and the other pilgrims. But I don't do that right away. I introduce myself. I, I say, welcome. Would you like some coffee, tea, some water? And we try and cre- create a relationship. And I'll introduce pilgrims to other pilgrims uh, if they don't know each other. So there's a kind of a hospitality ethic that I'm trying to promote. And for me, watching that moment when the walker, the adventurer the hiker, the uh, the cultural tourist, the, bicyclist, the cyclist becomes a pilgrim is a beautiful moment. And I can see it happening in front of me as they, as they are much more aware of the people at their sides. Yeah,
0: how fantastic. But let me ask you a very simple question. Given its challenges, and I'm sure there are many, why do you volunteer as a hospitalero?
1: I think for that reason of watching the transformation of these, these various characters who, who arrive at the albergue becoming um, pilgrims. There's also lots of other advantages. When you are staying in one place for a while, you get a chance to get into the rhythm of the town and actually be accepted as a member of the town the or the city where, where you're at in the, in the local area. I, I, I always advise the hospitaleros to go to a place and we're not supposed to give recommendations about places we're eating or, or we're getting our Wi-Fi, etc. But if you go back to the same place a few times, the Spanish warm up remarkably. I'll just tell you a quick story. In Zamora, which is on the Via de la Plata, I was there in 2010 with a friend from London, and we went into the churreria, which uh, was cr- across from the market uh, every morning and had, had some breakfast there. Or there's another ch- two churrerias, and he actually liked the other one because it was more spread out. So we take turns going back and forth, which is what we're supposed to do anyway. But we get, they, they found out that we were from Canada. We were, we were wearing uh, panuelos. Uh, we have this um, uh, neckerchief that we were. People ask us sometimes if we're scouts, although people in, uh-huh. people in Spain will uh, recognize that people from different areas actually wear a, a neckerchief as an identifier, sometimes with colors or with something written on it. But uh, we were wearing that. So they, they knew we were from Canada. And the next year I went back, and I was actually working in Salamanca, but the train stopped in Zamora, and it stopped early in the morning. So they kind of saved my life at six o'clock in the morning when they opened up and it was, it was a cool a cool night and they came in and they said hey we know you i said yes they said you're a pilgrim from canada i said well actually i'm a i'm a hospitalero from from canada but you're right and I, I was here last year and, and you know we remembered and rec- recorded that well the following year i was back to zamora just by the luck of the draw and i walked into the uh albergue and they said or sorry, I'm, I'm sorry into the into the churreria the to the churros place <laughs> And they said, we know you. I said, yes. They said, you're a ospilero. I said, yes, from Australia. <laughs> I said, well, close. Cassie, Cassie. The following year, I, I was back to Salamanca again, and, and I, I popped up to Zamora, and they walked in again, and they said, oh, we've got a question for you. Do kangaroos live in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> That's a
0: great story. You know, you, you just mentioned there um, talking to the Spanish. You must speak very good Spanish, do you?
1: I speak functional Spanish. Uh, in a large group, I can get lost. In I, I probably know what, the, what they're talking about, but I can get lost in some of the specifics. Right. When, I first, when I first went, I'd taken some Spanish lessons, and I could speak some very basic sentences. But the women I walked with became sisters to me. And so I really wanted, and, and they were going through certain struggles in their lives, and I wanted to speak them on a deep, at a deeper level. So I came back to Canada, and fortunately, in London, where I live, about 10% of the population is Latin American due to refugee Resettlement, And the fact that they found found London a very uh, copacetic place to set up. So we've got a lot of Latin Americans here. And I've got some friends who are from Latin America. And I went to the the library and I asked the librarian, Ken, you set me up with somebody who wants to learn English, I'll teach them Spanish. So very fortunately, I met a mother and a daughter from Colombia. And we exchanged languages for an hour, a week, for a couple of years, and that helped an awful lot.
0: Oh, what a great idea. That's a fantastic idea. I I mentioned earlier that we met at the American Pilgrims on the Camino gathering at Lake Tahoe, and you sang songs. Uh, in a, in a breakout session in one, one of the evenings there, and you sang a song that you often sing for pilgrims to wake them up from their slumber. Morning has broken, yeah. and I said that that's my right. my friend had stayed in the alberga and told me how beautiful it was to be woken by your singing. I think it might have been <laughs> Mister. Did we work out Fromista? I've never worked in Fromista. No, it's no, the, of, no. not and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But but that's a lovely thing to be able to contribute to people's uh, pilgrimage. <laughs> So tell us, Tom, about music in your life. How did music and why does music play such a significant role in your life?
1: I think I, I, there was some music in my home when I was growing up, uh, but mostly my father would come home after working Saturday morning uh, on, on a sixth day of work of the week and lay on the couch and put on the Metropolitan Opera and go to sleep. Huh. And <laughs> if you turned it off, he would wake up. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think music came in most primarily when I had three children And we had a a two-and-a-half-hour drive down to see my parents on a pretty regular basis and another hour to see my mother-in-law the other direction. And if we sang in the car, it it kept fighting down quite a bit. So, And Canada has a very strong tradition of children's music. So we we did a lot of that. And uh, I've got grandchildren now, and I I sing to them all the time. And it, it catches their attention. You know, music is the first thing that people respond to. And people who are at the end of their lives who are kind of losing the sense of who they are they'll respond to that as well. So music has this, to me, music is just joy and joy in action. And I couldn't walk the Camino without singing. Um, after I, after Rosa and Guille left in Pomferada the first year to go back home, because their three weeks of holidays were over and they had to go back to work in Majorca. There was a couple of days there where I found it hard to sing, but I was, I was back at it a couple of days later. Uh, I met them by the way, a year and a day later at the same bus station and we carried on out to the ocean in order to, uh, fulfill the communal promise to, to arrive as, as pilgrims together, both in Santiago and in Finisterre Fantastic. And then, But then we, we sang and the one woman uh, presented as, a, she was a, a businesswoman. She had a, a store at the beach and she presented as fairly hard headed. And I started singing and I got her, I, I, she was the one who didn't speak any English, but I got her to caught to repeat, sing, sing a song. And so she she would sing after that. And the, the, ex, the second year when she came back to the Camino, she said to me in Spanish, which I now understood a bit better, you've changed me. And I think the joy that I was feeling uh, was, was transferable. And um, I, I love singing to the pilgrims and waking them up that way. And the, cho- the song choices are based somewhat on their, uh, on their nationalities.
0: Yeah, right. Well, well that's a, another interesting aspect of your passion for music, because you're a great student of music in terms of the Camino aren't you? And there's, there's some great stories and lessons to learn.
1: Yeah. There's one of my favorite stories. Um, just to, just, I, I'm really also interested in why people want to walk the Camino their, their motivations. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why you walk the Camino, Pen, penance, gratitude, finding a new direction, grief for a loss, retirement changes, renewal, of the body and spirit, tourism, culture and language expansion. Those are all motives. But um, and I actually met some pilgrims who once said to me, we are eating the Camino. They were doing a gastronomical <laughs> excursion across the Camino, right. and really enjoying the food. But, my, but my, my motto, as I said, is to try and create that transformation. But one of these motives was really uh, made clear to me in, in, when I was working in Grignon, which is a parochial albergue in May of 2012. And uh, a pilgrim from France arrived, and we oriented him to the, to the albergue and what was going to happen. And we told him there was a seven o'clock mass. And he said, I would like to sing Ave Maria at mm-hmm. the Mass, at the service. And I said, well, we're going to have to ask the priest. So uh, Jesus Garcia, he, he's passed away now, but he was a loving pastor in Granion. He arrived in the albergue very often. And he came that day. And I said, Jesus, Jean-Marc would like to sing Ave Maria at the Mass. And Jesus looked a bit <laughs> tad skeptical to have his service uh, <laughs> altered for somebody. I said, "Well, Jean-Marc, show us." Well, Jean-Marc was a teacher of voice and an opera singer, so he got the job very quickly as soon as he opened his voice. And so Jesus said, "I will call on you at the close of the mass," which he did after the There's a benediction that they give in, in Granion, the same one as Roncesvalles and some other places. Lo- lovely piece of, of blessing to people. But after that, he called on Jean-Marc, and Jean-Marc sang Ave Maria. And then we. I, I'd also like to try and put singing into the dinner. So after the dinner hour, we were singing around. He, he, he sang something which was well appreciated by people. It was a very wonder, wonderful voice that, that came out of him. And then in the, in the service that we have in the choir loft in Granion where we pass a candle and people are invited to either pray or say, get, say a poem or just hold it in silence or sing, he sang again. And then it was time for people to go back to their beds and and slip down. And he was lingering. So I said, John Mark, if you'd like to sing, this choir loft is designed to carry the voice across the church and it won't bother the pilgrims as they settle into their mattresses. Um, Why don't you sing a couple songs? So he did. And then at the close of that, he turned to me and he said, when I was singing Ave Maria, that was for my daughter Marie. She died recently.
0: Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh wow what a story yeah yeah goodness that's fantastic and
1: and those those moments with pilgrims and you know it, it could be even just helping clearing them of bed bugs or it could be uh, attending to an injury or even, even giving them sometimes they'll take uh, tiny dollar store bottles of uh, vaseline and, and giving them the, the, the tips on how to prevent the blisters those opportunities to connect with them uh, are magic. And, you know, you're, you're, you're the rock in the stream, but that rock has a uh, shine to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, lovely. Lovely way of describing it too, Tom. Yeah, I love that. So you, you emailed me um, saying that you'd like to talk about preparing pilgrims to undertake the hero's journey. The hero's journey. What does that yes. mean? Tell us about that.
1: Well, I think the first name is Joseph Campbell is somebody who talks about the idea of the Odyssey in literature, one of our classic uh, themes that we have in, in literature and in, in, in cult- cultural, and I think most cultures have it, you know, people go on, on walkabout uh, or on, on spirit quest and it's leaving home, going to some place with a, with a destination and often with a spiritual purpose and then returning home and returning home possibly with changes, possibly with some new, some new learning, some, some new transformations that you've got. And I think that opportunity exists on the Camino. It's not that's not the only place it exists, but it exists brilliantly on the Camino for people. And I think that that, that uh, spirit sort of unites us. And I, it's interesting for, to me that people before the Camino, they don't often identify themselves as pilgrims, but people who've been on the Camino have no trouble yeah. saying, I'm a pilgrim. And to me, a pilgrim is a person who leaves home, to find themselves yeah
0: that's so true that's so true and of course the the, the pilgrimage is a great metaphor for life and and sure. yeah sure. And, and and taking that one step further Tom I wonder if you've given any thought to how we can spread our pilgrim spirit in our own communities
1: well we we have a number of activities that we run in London each of, each of our, our local chapters in Canada it's quite unique, and based on the resources that they have, places places to meet, and uh, the interests of the interests of the group. In in London, we've been very fortunate that we were started by a couple of artists. So we've often had um, either presentations of art or art art gallery openings. Sure. We've also done we, in in our meetings we tr- we have a a welcome back for experienced pilgrims, and then we ask the experienced pilgrims to read a poem which starts off, as you begin this pilgrim journey, may your heart be open to surprise. And then it goes on from there, but it, it, they're sort of passing the torch to the new pilgrims. And we're, ta- we're, we're identifying some of the values and some of the learnings that people have as, the, as they get on the Camino. Uh, we also have things like a labyrinth walk and we, we organize a labyrinth walk and we talk about the labyrinth as a analogy for a Camino. And, the, and we, we, in times when we can meet together, that's not right now, but in times when we can meet together, we talk about how you can see people on the labyrinth and one moment they're ahead of you and then they're beside you and then they're coming the other way and then they're behind you and you encounter people in your lives that way. And you you encounter, you encounter situations and challenges in the very same way. So some of the, those are some of the ways that we try and put a sense of spirituality into the communal. And of course the singing, I think, uh, to me, singing, singing is just a way that we lift our, our, our hearts and our spirits and, and, uh, Get past herself. I know. I know. Not everybody likes to sing, and some of the Spanish. There's expression in Spanish: "If I sing, it will rain." <laughs> so, <laughs> often people will uh, will uh, give themselves a that excuses. You can't. You, you don't. You don't want me singing. <laughs> I walk with a couple of. I walk with a, an Italian retired engineer and a Spanish retired banker, and when we we, we linked up in Arez on the Camino you know, Aragonés, and uh, I said, "Oh." Giorgio, you're Italian, you must like to sing. Well, sure he did. And he would sing. And and I would sing. And then I would say, Jose Luis, it's your turn. And he went, no canto, I don't sing. <laughs> but when we were walking and we were not close to him, we could hear him sing. Ah. <laughs> we kind of, we kind, he kind of caught, caught the bug. Yeah, uh, he right. wasn't going to sing in front of us, but he he, he had that, that sense of singing. How, how can I keep from singing?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, so, isn't it? Sometimes you find yourself alone and you think, oh, I'll, you know, I, you don't even realize you're singing. <laughs> it's just subconscious almost, isn't it? And then someone will, right. walk, someone will walk up to you and say, oh, I enjoyed you. So oh, you didn't even realize I was singing. T- Tom, do you, do you have a favorite Camino song?
1: Well, I, I, I'm actually known in Spain for Alleluia, and I've used that in a couple of different ways. Uh, I've been invited to sing that at one of the hospitaleros. They always have a gathering for some of, summing up of the year, and it's between around the time of December the 6th to the 8th, because there's two Spanish holidays, the Constitution Day and the Day of the Immaculate Conception. There are, are those, and that's what they call a puente, that the bridge between, in Spanish people, when there's two holidays two days apart, that means that the day in the middle is automatically a holiday too. So hospitals get together on those days, and they, they we have a mass for them in Immaculata, and they, they, ask, they ask, they say, Tom, will you sing Hallelujah? Now, I recognize that Hallelujah is in a church spiritual song, but to be yeah. honest with you, the Spanish people don't care. Uh, they actually invited me to sing that a couple of days ago for the Good Friday service. But in the pilgrim shelters, after dinner, whenever possible, I will say to people, we have a saying in English, sing for your supper. Yeah. In Spanish, that's Cantad para tener. And I'll say, so we're going to sing together, and I want you to sing with me. And I'll start off by singing the, the chorus to Hallelujah, and they all know it. Uh, to my, much to my surprise in 2005, when I first walked, Spanish people all knew that song it was because it was on the soundtrack for Shrek, which had just come out the year before. Right. <laughs> Ruf- Rufus Wainwright's edition was, was on that. So everybody knew hallelujah. And so I, and I would sing at the song with, I would start with the chorus, I would sing two lines and then I would stick the chorus in and I would gesture with my hands, come out and sing it, help me with it. And 90% of the people would jump in and, and, and at least try a little bit because uh, it's a universal word across languages, and uh, then I would say to them quite proudly, "That's a song from my country, from Canada." You have a song from your country, and then we would go around the table and we would get people to contribute the songs from their own countries. And it, it could have been their national anthem, or it could be a folk song or a children's song. Uh, the, the interesting thing for me uh, in, in, the, in the year I was doing that in, in uh, May two thousand and twelve, back in Grañon, was that the uh, the most the best singers that year for me were the koreans and watching the other pilgrims eyes open wide when they watched these koreans open their mouths and sing uh was a was a wonderful feeling of satisfaction because they were walking beside them and koreans tend to be fairly humble and quiet but when they were singing they were suddenly suddenly there was a whole revelation for the other pilgrims
0: yeah that's right they are very humble and quiet and and very respectful and and lovely to walk with and spend time yeah. with what songs did they sing mainly?
1: Well, there's children, Korean children's songs. One of the things that it aids them a lot is that in Korea. In Korea, my daughter worked in Korea for a couple of years, and I went over to visit her. They actually have um, like karaoke rooms, but they're rooms. They're they're not for the, the general public. You come in with your family and your friends, and you bring your snacks and your drinks, and then you you, you load up the karaoke machine and you can play the songs you wish to. And they're often, they're often, know some, lots of English songs, but they're also great Korean songs that have uh, di- kind of a different tonal melody, but they're, they're, they're no less beautiful. Uh, the, the last Korean that I remember sp- singing was this p- p- past year in Nakara, and he was yodeling, which isn't Korean. It was just, he had loved, loved the, the thing <laughs> yodeling, but he was actually, actually very good at it.
0: <laughs> a, con- a Korean yodeler, then, that's not something a you Korean hear yodeler, every day. Yeah. That's
1: fantastic. Yep, um, no, you don't hear that every day.
0: <laughs> you've, you've met a lot of people and you said earlier that you've seen a lot of transformation and it's part of the, the, the enjoyment for you is watching that transformation in people. Let me ask yes. you this. Is the Camino for everyone?
1: Oh, that's interesting. No, I don't think it is. And I think that's part of the issue. I think you have to step up into the unknown a bit to do the Camino. You know, and I think that sort of teases people out a little bit. Uh, I know that I know there are people who go in the community who aren't necessarily prepared. I remember uh, in one of the albergues, there was a great big Texan with a huge pack. And he sat down and he he sat down with a lot of weight <laughs> to his to his re- relaxation post. And he said, I saw that movie the way before I came. I really liked it. I don't like it so much anymore. It didn't show the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> From, from your theater seat, it's kind of hard to feel the mountains <laughs> even if it did show them did show the mountains uh, but I think you know the and there are there are people certainly who arrive and who arrive as somewhat entitled and uh, the, the, the hospitals have an expression the uh, tourist demands the pilgrim accepts with gratitude and I always think that i'm there I'm there to serve the pilgrims and uh, I, I'm going to try to remember those the, those wonderful pilgrims because there's lots of wonderful pilgrims. Uh, the, other, the other advantage, of course, too, is the Oscillero service. We stop in and visit each other and see each other and support each other. So there's great there's great uh, sense. One of the things they give you when you go to start we make sure in Canada that we send people, besides the Panuela, which they're wearing to identify themselves as a Canadian, uh, we also send them a Muñequito, um, which is a little uh, yellow man. I'm holding it up so you can see. Oh, yeah, but yeah. that's that's a symbol of the hospital service. And when you're wearing that, the hospital know that you're one of them and it's like, you're a brother or a sister. So you can actually, um, you know, you, they would store a bag for you, for example, or <laughs> I walked into a res and they said, Oh, you're a hospital. Would you like to cut the bread? And can you make the salad? Do you have a prayer for, the, <laughs> for <the> dinner?" <laughs> so I got drafted just for the night and I was happy to do it.
0: Yeah. I bet you were. I bet you were. Let me go one step further. Um, this, if there's somebody listening to this this discussion and they really want to do the Camino and their family and friends say they're crazy, what would you say? <laughs> what would you say to them?
1: Well, I always call the Camino mi Obsession magnífica. It's a magnificent obsession that I think gives people an opportunity to really look at their lives to, uh, and we often look at it as a before and after uh, experience, and to find to simplify to prioritize, to, to value, to, to celebrate. There's all these things that come out of doing a Camino. I think the Camino for me may be more tolerant. I don't judge other people's Caminos. Yeah. People have their backports transported. I don't know what's in their backpack. I don't know what's in their body, what, what struggles they're, they're, they're facing. Uh, if somebody wants to stay in, in hotels rather than, than pilgrim shelters, that's fine. That's, that's their Camino, and, I'll, and, and I'm happy to see them uh, have an experience because it's individual for for, for for everyone. And people, I think, get different things out of it based on what you put into it. But certainly that stepping off into the unknown and getting a chance to experience Spanish hospitality and the beautiful countryside and the, the monuments and the historical events and the fact that almost every town has its own saint or its own miracle or its own uh, festival yeah, yeah, around, yeah. around something. is just a, a miracle of hospitality.
0: Yeah. And you you conduct classes and talks, and one of the subjects is unpacking the Camino for pilgrims who return. What's your your advice to make it easier to to, to come home and and survive and make sense of it all post-Camino?
1: I I think you can find people to share the experience with. That's really helpful. I think you can also share the experience by reading books. I have some favorite books that I read that um, take me back there. And I think, oh yeah, this person really got what I got out of it. Uh, I've got—I read other books for people. I'm thinking, well, that was a different experience communal, than the one I had. But um, <laughs> I'm just as glad for what I got out of it. Yeah. Uh, there's also, there's also, you know, these podcasts. There's, you know, there's blogs. There's YouTube videos. Uh, Spain, Spain, has a, a very interesting history and 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 uh, culture. It's quite tortured, of course, but it's really interesting and it's it's worth ex- exploring and, and and getting into. So. There's all there's all of that that can keep the communal alive. This uh, opportunity to use technology to meet across distances is working brilliantly for me. I've, I've been I've, it, it just came along at the right time. If if it would come along five years ago when we weren't as smooth about getting uh, people to be able to communicate uh, from you know, Canada to Australia, across to England, uh, I, I was communicating this morning this morning with some people talking about the fact we canceled an hospitalarial training and how to keep the communal alive. How to work on their Spanish? How to learn about Spain? And one of the per- it was for people who had tr- signed up for a couple of courses that we had offered and cancelled. But one of the person invited her partner, who lives in Britain, which is right across, right across on the other side. And it, the, the technology worked brilliantly. It's where he was next door.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's incredible, isn't it? And to see all of these people singing songs um, together, choirs, yeah. choirs yes. singing, yes songs together yeah. it's just absolutely fantastic and it i think really is. i think you know someone said to me very early on um from my my yoga studio um they said uh in in crisis creates opportunity and we're going to see great change yeah. and and yeah. that's certainly the case and uh, i think it's wonderful it really is Give us one way, Tom, that your Camino life resonates with you in your day to
1: day life. Well, I think when you come back as a pilgrim, you've been given a gift and you recognize how lucky you are, and there's opportunities to give that gift to others, not just the Camino I'm talking about. I'm really proud of our local pilgrim group because we, for example, Prepare meals at a church. We we do a, we have a prep team that prepares a stew the second Friday of the month, and then uh, every, about every six weeks we come together as a group of about twenty to twenty five people, yeah. and we're serving close to a, close to two hundred meals to to the needy of the community, and giving giving to people and recognizing them and telling them honestly as you look them in the eye that we're glad you're here. To me, that is an extension of the hospitality that the Camino has given me. Yeah, that's great. You wrote to me to say
0: your feeling is that pilgrims walk in Spain without really getting to understand the country that is hosting them. and yes. and, and you wanted to raise as part of the interview Spanish customs and culture. I think that's very, True. very important. I've, I've said often here on this podcast I love the slow tourism of walking through Spain yes. when you really yes. can be engulfed by the culture. It would be a exactly. terri- a terrible shame not to – appreciate that.
1: Well, it's not the pilgrims' fault. The schedule that the pilgrims follow doesn't really line up very well with the Spanish schedule. These pilgrims are getting up in early in the morning and they're getting out of, of town, and often as the sun is rising. And the Spanish have a little later uh, habit to rise. The Spanish have the longest day, uh, I think, in Europe in terms of a working day because of the siesta stuck in the middle. And then they're very, well, well, they're very open <laughs> to actually going out and partying at night. I'm, I'm often astonished at the st- stamina that my Spanish friends have to, to go, go have meetings all day and then to go and party into the wee hours and to get up the next morning and be ready to go again. It's, it's just it's just incredible. Uh, One of my friends described it to me. They said, uh, for Spanish people, uh, getting drinking is not a sprint. It's a marathon.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember being in Spain and staying in a touristy area and thinking, oh, it's 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. It's not too noisy out there. i <laughs> will wait till 4 or 5 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I
0: know.
1: But, uh, other customs that I love about, about Sp- uh, the, the Spanish people are very active in the morning, and they have lots of markets, and they have opportunities to get together. One of the things you'll notice at a, at a market often is the Spanish people don't go to the stall that's empty because you can get your stuff and, and escape like we, like we Anglos do. They find the stall that's the busiest. They go ask who the last person was. Uh, El ultimo, <laughs> and then and then they know they follow that person, and they then they sit and chat and gossip and and, and exchange news together because they love to be social together. Uh, I don't know what this coronavirus is going to do there because they can't keep their hands off each other. Uh, when you meet a Spanish person, uh, the nor- the normal thing to do is to give them a hug if it's a man, and to double double <laughs> double tap the cheeks with uh, with with, a, with, a, with an air kiss, or if it's a real good friend, you actually kiss them on the cheek. And I, I can see that um, sad, sadly changing, and I don't, um, I don't like to see, see that happening. When you walk into a restaurant that people are eating, uh, you stop at their table and you say to them, buen provecho, que aprovecho, buen provecho. Uh, if, if they're Catalans from the Barcelona area, Tarragona, you would say, uh, bon profit. And what you're doing is you're wishing them a happy meal. I like to try and joke that the, the translation for that in English is bon appetit. Because I don't think we we Anglos take this, and Spanish people look at us in a bit of surprise that we we see meals as as something to dash the food down and then go on to the next. Because they they linger over it, they celebrate over it, they look each other in the eye. When I'm toasting with my Spanish friends, I will say "salud," which means "to your health." But if I don't look them in the eye, they won't Mm -hmm. tap the glass. They, They you have to look them in the eye to tap to tap the glass. And and there's that sense of hospitality. And then, as the as as the even because Spain has a lot of heat through the summer, especially, and which is which makes the siesta very very practical and a, a safety measure, you'll find them indoors uh, having meals. Then their biggest meal today the day is their lunchtime meal, their comida. and they will do that in their homes or in restaurants and bars. And they're there for for a significant amount of time. You know, and a Spanish waiter you have to ask him for the check. You don't, He's not going to bring it over automatically. You know, that, that's quite rude on his part. So. You have to scribble in your hand with your finger or you have to say La Cuenta and, and ask, them, ask them for that. So there's all the – and then on, and at night they'll drive to the downtown and they'll take out their uh, their buggies and have their children dressed in all their finery and walk around and enjoy meeting, meeting and greeting and t- telling each other how, how beautiful their children are. It's, it's a charming, charming culture.
0: Yeah, and you're right when you say it really will impact them, this whole coronavirus thing, because it's contrary to everything that they love and, and, tre- and cherish. Let's talk. Yes. Let's talk about your Camino, Tom. Um, I've got a handful of quick questions here for you. A favorite place?
1: Well, oh, there's many. Uh, uh, in terms of a, a stage of the Camino, I love the walk over the Cross of Iron from uh, Bedon, mm. uh, up in the hills, down into El Elasabo, and even down into Molina Seca, entering the Bierzo Valley.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that part of the world too. How many Compostelas do you have? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I don't always go get them. Uh, I think I've got three or four I could put my hands on. Uh, to me, they're less important than uh, the actual opportunity to be among the pilgrims. Um,
0: do you? Is there a Camino shrine in Casa Tom?
1: <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> is there? Tell <laughs> we, us about we it. Into, well, we moved into an apartment, and the apartment has some very odd angles. And one of the rooms, the den, the den of the apartment has a very sharp, corner uh comes in at probably like a oh, uh, maybe a 70 degree angle and so what i did was i built some bookshelves there and i have, have a couple of couple of layers of of camino books uh, my friends rose and Guille gave me some uh, botas de madera some some wooden boots from the galicia They're, they sit at the bottom my my uh hospitalero uh scarfs often often is, sit, is sitting on it by the way,'m part of the hospital scarf is your Australian hospitalero.
0: ah there you are
1: <laughs> we, well i helped I helped them with their first training uh, we, wrote, we wrote the manual for for doing it and we were training people around the world and then this uh, pictures pictures of my friends and some shells and various things but yeah, that's a place where I'm quite happy to go and look and look and pull out a book and <laughs> fantastic what did you
0: what did you do for a living before you yeah. before you retired
1: I was a teacher of the deaf ah Yeah. And and, you know, you talk about my love of music. Uh, I got, I taught, I taught mostly in the high school and I taught a lot of different subjects because it was a small school and we had to be generals. But for four years I taught grade two and three. And I, I, I talked uh, the principal into allowing me to have one period of half an hour of music every six days. So different days of the week, I'd be trucking my guitar into the school and we played, you know, things like uh, the Johnny Appleseed song, the Lord is good to me and songs by some of the performers that, uh, I loved swinging my my children to and people would occasionally meet me in the hall and they would say, Tom, we didn't know you played the guitar. And I would hold myself very erect. And I would say, I play the guitar and I sing for deaf people. (laughs) (laughs) But the kids enjoyed that tremendously. But anyway, it was, it was a wonderful career. We had a great staff and the the kids were from basically a largely rural, small town, small city areas. So they were lovely, lovely uh, people. And they, in, in, we had high expectations for them and many times they, they came up to that
0: and beyond so I, I think it's a, probably an obvious question how does the guitar how does how does a deaf child appreciate the guitar?
1: well deafness is not an, a total on or off thing uh, most deaf people have some residual hearing and especially in the time when I was doing this uh, hearing aids were encouraged and we had we had um, FM systems where we could, um, we we were mic'd as teachers. We had to remember to turn the mic off when we went to the washroom. (laughs) And uh, Some of our our children were were partially hearing. They may have had uh, other issues. The thing with deafness is it's not necessarily a total absence of sound. It's an absence of being able to discriminate sound clearly. And what I use for lay people is if you think about when you're driving in your car and your radio is getting out of range of the station and it's, it's getting a bit of distortion in it, if you turn the radio up louder, it doesn't necessarily make you understand any better. And for deaf people, some of, the, some of the sounds that are in the normal range of hearing aren't available to them. Now, my wife is deaf, and she's got a severe to profound hearing loss, but hearing aids have become so good that they're like little computers in your ear, and we swear that she can actually hear better than I can sometimes. I think that's true.
0: <laughs> wow, what a great story. What do you, you just mentioned your wife. What do your friends and family make of all of this Camino Life.
1: <laughs> well, my, I had the joy of taking my brother and his son on the Camino. We walked the Camino Portuguese, walking up the coast in Portugal and across along the coast of Spain, and then in, in, in and up to Santiago a couple of years ago. And that was a, a joyous experience in the, in the main. My, my nephew has very long legs, and keeping up to him one is sometimes a bit of a challenge. But <laughs> And we also, I won't forgive him, because we were, we were walking out of Vigo, and I said to him, Sunday, Ben, you should look for Chocolates Conchoro. And my friend Rosa, who was walking with us, <laughs> said, "He's walking so fast; he's not going to stop. We're going to get out of town." <laughs> we walked all morning without eating because he he got us. He dragged us out of town before we could uh, find a. There's lots of them he, he passed by. He just blew right by them. But uh, my that my, that brother, uh, he's, a, he's actually sent me a song just recently that has a communal connection. So, uh, and I'm, often he will introduce me to people. Uh, he, he he offers house concerts. And he often will introduce me to people who have an interest in the Camino, you know, and we will, we will chat about that. Uh, the others certainly recognized that I have a love for Spain. And when they're planning a trip there, they'll, they'll talk to me about what which, which should I go and who should I do. And yeah. um, one, of my, one of my other nieces worked in Spain as an au pair girl. Uh, and she worked in Burgos, and she worked in Santa Maria de la Calvara, and she worked in vanyon So she got to see a fairly good-sized city, a uh, very, very small city or a large town, and a, a small town of 300 people. And um, she, she had a had a stellar experience. When I go back there, the people all say to me, "How's Stephanie doing?" <laughs> <laughs> they don't say, "They don't say nice to see you." They say, "How's Stephanie doing?" Oh, that's so great!
0: <laughs> that's fantastic.
1: No, she became no, be part of their family. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who's listening today and the thinking of walking?
1: Well, it's your Camino, and you should organize it the way you want to. Weight is really important. We often think that we need to take care of everything. Spain is a modern country and you can pick up things along the way if you need them. More often, the, the pilgrims will be dropping stuff, extra weight off in the in the caja de donativos, the donation the, the box that you'll find in every albergue because they've taken, they've taken too much. Uh, so I think what you do want to do is you want to get your backpack packed, uh, go back to the store where you bought it and ask them to help you with adjusting it so it it works to your body. Uh, re- realize that it's the day after day after day walking that can beat you up. So don't listen to your body carefully. And don't go past your pain threshold. Uh, if you're if you've got hot spots in your feet, stop, take off your socks, put some Vaseline or there's other there's foot glide, there's other kinds of products that yeah. you can fly, uh, and protect your feet so that so that you're walking well. If you're feeling a pain, then maybe it's time to stop. And you don't necessarily have to plan the Camino you know, by every stop. There's also lots of great great resources that you can these these podcasts are a great, a great resource, the blogs, the, uh, the Camino forum, there's all, and, and communal guidebooks as well. There's a number of good, really great guidebooks. I was very fortunate my first year because there was a Canadian guidebook and it did a wonderful job of integrating the nature with the historical things that were happening. And so every morning as Rosa and Gia would do their stretches and put on their Vaseline, uh, I'd be reading my guidebook. And then later on in the day when they'd be explaining something to me that happened in a place I had actually already pre-read about that, so I looked a little better in Spanish than I actually was, <laughs> because I could I could relate to what they were talking about. But uh, it's a it's a total experience that I think is your experience, and you sort of keep it for keep it for yourself in terms of the way you want to do it. Also, don't take don't get a schedule that forces you to hasten your hasten your trip. Give yourself a couple of rest days. If you stop in places like uh, Pamplona or Burgos or Lyon, you could actually see the Spanish uh, nightlife. Uh, you're allowed to stay in the pilgrim shelters for one night unless you're injured or sick. Uh, it's th- consider the second night maybe taking a pension or, or a hotel where you, or, 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 a, or a room where you can which you can rent, and that way you can stay up a little later. You can sleep in, in the morning a bit, and you can also get, a, get out and, and experience the the tapas culture or, some of the, or visits around the museums and the, and, the, uh, and the churches. There's a real wealth of culture there. And I think if you pre-prepare Voice- by doing some reading about Spanish life or Spanish culture and history, it pays you back many times.
0: Yeah, that's right. Look, we're, you've been very kind with your time, Tom. Tell us a Camino story.
1: Well, I'll tell you how I met the woman who trained me uh, as a hospitalero. The Spanish people were sending people over from, from Europe to train, and I had signed up for this, this training, and I walked uh, in February, March, as I said to you, and my friends who I walked with were often not really uh, flexible about taking detours. I would suggest some place to go. But one day we were coming down from the Alto de Perdon, that place with all those um, – rusted statues of, of traditional pilgrims. And they said, let's go this way. And they went over to Ayunate And Ayunate is a very interesting eight-sided small church that people think oh. it might be connected with the Templars because of the eight-sidedness. Yeah, yeah. And there's sort of, sort of a half colonnade there. Anyway, we went in and we were listening to Gregorian chant, which they were playing inside the church. And so after a, few bit, uh, uh, after a while, we got out and we... Went over and there's one That's not a church. That's in a city or a town. It's out in the country by itself, so it's quite strange. From it's it's more than a chapel, be, it, but it, but there's no there's no civilians around there. Omanos is about so two kilometers away. Anyway, we uh, knocked on the door because the girls wanted to get a sale stamp for their passports, their, their pilgrim credentials, and uh, they would they would get sales in museums and universities and art galleries and uh, any albergues. And uh, bars were turistico. They weren't getting sales in the bars, which, which you can do, but they, that wasn't their their, their way they visited, envisioned their Camino. You know. Anyway, this short woman arrived at the door, and she threw open the door, and she said, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to put the sale up for you. This was February, so it wouldn't be a time. when There's a lot of people going by anyway. And she said, why don't you come in and have some tea with me? And she fed us ta- chai tea, and her husband later, later said, she must have liked you guys automatically because she doesn't give her chai, chai tea to everybody. <laughs> but as <that's laughs> As we were passing in the door of this very small library, which only has seven mats on the floor upstairs, um, we weren't staying there for the night. We were just, we were just stopping for the stamp, but she, she said, come in. There was a poster on the wall and the poster on the wall said, a gathering of pilgrims, Toronto, May 2005. And I, I pointed to it and I said, I'm going to that. And she said, I'm going to that too. And because I because I had signed up for the hospital training and she was the hospitalera, I said, I'm going to take the Ospedalero training. And she said, great, I'll be your teacher.
0: Oh, no way. That's great.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. and she came over, and she, she played the guitar, and she had a voice like an angel, and she was really inspirational in terms of the training she gave. And even more than that, it, it appeared that she, she was Venezuelan, had met her husband who was a, a Dutch uh, civil engineer in Venezuela. They got married, and they had some children back in uh, Holland And they were walk. they walked from Holland. She actually, I visited them and she showed me where they had started from in Holland. So you talk about uh, thousands of kilometers, that's thousands of kilometers to Santiago. And they had basically, I think, camped their way, most of the way. This was back in the 90s. And they got so inspired by it that they sold, they come back to Amsterdam, sold what they owned, took the money and started fixing up albergues across Spain. And when they got them into good shape, they would move on. And at the time, she said to us, Ayunati is our last albergue, and the only reason we got in here was because the parish priest was my parish priest back in Venezuela. But we don't have any more money left, and this is not something that we own. This is basically on loan to us. And if the community wants to take it, take it back, they, they're, they're, they're going to get it back. Now, another the, the, the part of the story that I, I have to tell people is that when she came, she had been diagnosed with a uterine tumor. And the doctors would say, you better stay and get that operated on, and she said, no, I've got a commitment to walk, to, 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 train these hospitaleros. So she came and gave us a marvelous training. It was, it was full, fully dynamic and, and you wouldn't have guessed there was anything wrong with her. Yeah. The next day I drove her and some other friends to Niagara Falls to see Niagara Falls. And she kind of told me that she had had this health crisis coming and that she was, uh, there was limited time, but she went to Niagara Falls. She was on the deck of the, of the rainbow falls for half an hour in, in, in trance and that. And we went over to the butterfly museum and, 40, or sorry, the Butterfly Conservatory, 45 minutes there, and then she was done. And I actually never saw her for the rest of the conference that was there, even though she was still there. She was kind of resting till she could go back. She did get operated on. It was benign. She's now living in Amsterdam as la abuela, the, granddo- the grandmother for her grandchildren.
0: Wow, what a great story. I'd love to find her, Tom. Well, I, I can connect you. I think that, that's a great that. Well, let's let's work that out. One final sure. question: We sang sure. "Amazing Grace" together at Lake Tahoe. Yes. I was blind, uh, I was blind, but now I see. Would yes. you, Would you be the same man you are today if the Camino had not come into your life?
1: Oh, absolutely not. I I, uh, I the Camino opened opened my eyes for, to to friendships and to culture and to hospitality. Uh, in ways that have been deeply enriching, just I just've got time for one more little quick story of course I inveigled a young woman in uh, to read to to sing I, I didn't normally ask people to come to the oracion uh, or ask the, honor of the Vesper service in the in the little chapel that is in font but she was singing in the alberghi and she came in with a she spoke French to her father she had a Portuguese passport she was speaking Spanish to the to the other young people who were who in the al- alberghi that day and I said that you sing something. So after during the the service of uh, vespers, she sang "Amazing Grace," and as she sang that line, uh, she sang "Was blind, but now I see," which is the pronunciation that a Spanish person would give to that to that word of blind. And then after that, she said, "What's that song mean?" She sang that song totally by rote, without <laughs> without knowledge of the meaning. And it was my delight to be able to tell her about the. Um, the slave captain who had reformation and and created the song as a, as a a recognition that his life had been uh, transformed by the experience of faith.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a great song. Well, look, Tom, I think you're fantastic. You have an energy. (laughs) You really do. You have an energy about you. And I noticed in Tahoe that your aura, I, I remember writing a note on the bottom of my notepad when I got back to my hotel room, Tom aura buzzing like a bee. (laughs) <laughs> and, there's a canadian and,
1: and there's a canadian author there's a canadian author that wrote he jumped on his horse and rode off madly in all directions <laughs> and i think he was talking about me when he uh, he wrote that line well underneath
0: aura buzzing like a bee i wrote spreading the camino pollen <laughs> which i love no. thanks thanks for being you thanks very much for having the the time or taking the time to share your story and thanks for caring for all those hundreds, perhaps thousands, of pilgrims. Your generosity of spirit makes you one in a million, my friend. Let's well,
1: ha- I, I, it gives more, it gives more than I get.
0: Let's have a couple of pops on the Chesterfield.
1: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you get to Canada, please 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 try and swing by. I would love to have you uh, speak to our groups in Canada. The the presentation that you made as the Camino and its community and family. And the, uh, the pictures you saw, you had me, we just put the pictures. They were from your Italian photographer friend. But the uh, the presentation was well, well worth the time. I, I uh, recognized that Lake Tahoe was a bit of a opportunity to do some broken field running, but I thought they, they handled that brilliantly. And you were, you were a part of that. So I really enjoyed that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Tom. And, and, and I, I look forward to our paths crossing again soon. Buen Camino, my friend. Buen Camino. My guest this week, the Canadian pilgrim and Hospitalero Tom Friesen. There's an old Swedish proverb, those who wish to sing always find a song. Sing as loud as you can. Sing with someone you love. If you can't, walk. Sing. If you can't see hope, sing. If love and life and the Camino was part of your plan and it's now out the door, sing instead. Go for a walk today and sing. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way